0: Inside a rough and ruthless newsroom, thousands of stories fight for the spotlight. Only a few survive past their 15 minutes of fame. So, what makes for a good headline, and what makes for a buried byline? Join us, two former TV news producers, as we dig up stories that never got the recognition or justice they deserve. This is Buried Bylines. Hi.
1: Hello. (laughs) Hello.
0: today I'm gonna need everybody to buckle up for this episode I'm and scared. I've told you about it I know I'd, I'm not gonna say much of my opinion because I want to give you all the facts first I've so, been
1: preparing myself for how probably mad I'm gonna be or just mm-hmm. maybe I I feel like I don't get as mad as you but I I feel like I will be appalled
0: yeah 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 yeah, yeah for sure so okay. I chose to do this case after listening to a recent episode of Let's Go to Court. It's a podcast. I usually try to stay away from doing cases recently covered by other podcasts. Yeah. Um. But this one is extremely timely and extremely important. Okay. So like I said, I want to give you all the facts of the case before throwing my opinion in the ring. So we're going to start off with some sources. Florida Today did a great job covering this case and all of its updates. I also have some other Florida-based local outlets that provided some information. Unlike some of the other cases that we've covered recently, this case has gotten national attention. 48 Hours has been covering the case for 24 years. Holy shit. I know. It blows my mind, but restores some of my faith in the journalism world. yeah. Hell of a follow. Hats off to you. We also have coverage from CNN, ABC News, NBC, all the big players. So we'll be addressing why this case did blow up. Okay. And I did watch the latest 48 Hours episode, which aired in April, so a month ago. Highly recommend watching it because it has everything. It has a recap, audio, timeline. Who's it
1: about? You- I <laughs> will tell
0: you. I told <laughs> you I'm giving you all of the facts before I start coming for people. Okay, so this case started in April of 1989 in Titusville, Brevard County, Florida. That's when a man named Charles Flynn, 21 years old, known as Chip to his family and friends, was found shot in a citrus grove. According to CBS News, he'd been with his ex-girlfriend, 19-year-old Kim Hollick, that night. She later told investigators that they had been robbed by a, quote, black man in Holder Park. The two were apparently sitting in Chip's truck together a little after 11 p.m. So a little bit more about what Kim told detectives that night, and this is directly from recordings of Kim talking to detectives. She said, quote, I told Chip there's a black guy on your side and he rolled up the window real quick. When asked later about a suspect description, Kim, who I'd like to point out is white, said, quote, I really didn't get a good look at him. I was really scared. 20 minutes later, according to CBS News, Kim told detectives Chip got out of the truck and she heard him say, quote, hold on, man. Now we have more audio. Detective, quote, did you see the black male was armed at the time? Kim. Yes, I did. Chip had a gun in his glove box. I took the gun out of the glove box and stuck it under some jeans that were next to me. In a written statement right after the incident happened, she told police the man had her tie Chip's hands with a shoelace from his shoe then she told police the man ordered her to hand over money from chip's wallet they all got in the truck and the suspect drove them to the orange grove now kim originally told investigators the man steered shifted gears because this was a manual and was also holding the gun at the same time but later according to 48 hours she told chip's parents she was the one shifting So already we're having some mixed descriptions from this woman. In a recorded interview hours after she gave the written statement, she told police the assailant tied Chip's hands with the shoelace. So at first she said he had her tie his hands with the shoelace. And now she's saying the guy tied his hands with the shoelace. So a lot of things not lining up. And then when they got to the Grove, Kim said the man pulled her out of the truck and Chip with his hands still tied behind his back, got a hold of the gun that Kim had hidden on the truck seat. So this is Chip's gun, not the gun that the suspect was holding. And we have more audio. Kim quote, he leaned out of the truck and somehow shot at the guy and the guy stepped back. Chip dove out of the truck. I jumped in the truck and I heard about five or six gunshots. Kim then said she drove four miles away to a friend's house for help. Many question this action. I will say the first cell phone was invented in 1973, but it was a giant brick and they really didn't become popular until the 90s. Unclear why she didn't drive straight to the police station. It was later pointed out she would have passed three pay phones, two convenience stores, and a hospital on the way to her friend's house. Just saying. Sheriff's Deputy Mark Rixey and Sergeant Diane Clark were the first two officers on the scene. Quick timeline check here. Kim said the suspect took them to the Citrus Grove at 12.10. The officers weren't dispatched to the scene until 1.13. According to an interview with CBS News' Aaron Moriarty, Deputy Mark Rixey said they were actually dispatched to the wrong location twice. Apparently, Kim gave them the wrong directions to the grove. In her defense, someone was just shot, so you would be a bit out of it. Sergeant Clark ended up sending another deputy to pick Kim up from her friend's house so that she could guide them to where the truck and ship were. Now, here's a transcript of that interview. Diane Clark, quote, she, Kim, wouldn't get out of the car. Mark Rixey, we say, can you show us where? She said, nope, not going down there. Aaron Moriarty, what did that say to you? What did you think? Diane Clark, quote, there's something wrong. Something is not ringing true. I would want to know, is he okay? Which you would. I mean, I feel like that would be the first thing. There's like. something wrong. There's something wrong. They eventually located Chip laying on his stomach, hands still tied behind his back, bleeding from a single gunshot wound to the chest. He was awake and conscious. They said the first words out of Chip's mouth were, quote, get me out of here. I want to go home. In the 48 Hours episode, Diane Clark said she got the impression that he was protecting Kemp. He didn't mention anything about a black man. He didn't mention being robbed. He didn't mention being kidnapped. According to Florida Today, Rixie and Clark also said they saw no evidence of a struggle and shootout that Kim claimed. Actually, Kim's jacket and some clothes were laid out on the ground as if to create a makeshift blanket nearby. Chip Flynn stopped breathing twice before the ambulance arrived and eventually died on the way to the hospital. His parents, now deceased, both rushed to the grove when they heard that Chip was hurt, but police wouldn't let them near the scene, so... He died before they could see him, Ugh. which is so sad. And uh, an important thing I want to note, Kim did not ask for Chip one time. It's a red flag. Mm-hmm. In 1999, the Flynn's told 48 Hours they were actually shocked to learn Chip had been with Kim Halleck that night because Chip had a new girlfriend. Chip's parents said Kim had become too possessive and overbearing. David Stroop, Sounds Chris's like friend, motive. <laughs> yep. Sounds like a possible motive. David Stroop, Chip's friend, and the person he lived with at the time said he remembered she was upset about the breakup and didn't want to let go. And that's actually where Kim went to to get help was David's house. So like where Chip lived with his friend David was four miles away. He later told 48 Hours he was confused as to why she came to his house rather than stop at the first potential phone. According to the Miami Herald, her parents' home and the emergency room at a nearby hospital were closer, which I agree. But as devil's advocate, if her story is what happened, you would be frantic and losing your mind.
1: I feel like to play more devil's advocate, it would be more of like you wanna you wanna go to your friend's house because that's safe. Like you you right. know that's that that's true. A safe that's a good place. point. Like yeah. that's more aware of. I feel like. But if I don't know, it's hard to say because you can't always imagine what you would do I in know. a situation like that. But I feel like I would go to. The
0: first place I could find a phone, uh-huh. or the hospital, or something, you know. So the, the hospital, Herald... you know, where the ambulances <laughs> live. <laughs> you know, you know where they could help your friend that you left in the orange grove for dead. The Miami Herald reports a police artist created a sketch after Kim looked at 70 mugshots, rejecting them all, but picking out features for the drawing. She pointed out that the hair was not long enough in the sketch, but police sent it out anyway. According to a Florida Today article from the 1980s, they got 30 telephone tips from citizens who saw that sketch on the TV and in newspapers. So we're already getting TV coverage, newspaper coverage. It didn't mention if it was just in the area or nationally, so I'm not sure. 12 potential suspects were identified. Those suspects included a 31-year-old small-time drug dealer named Crosley Green, who was recently released from prison. He was a local high school dropout with not a lot of money. Family members were also known to police at the time for various crimes. It's unclear exactly how investigators narrowed it down to Green, but the sheriff's spokesperson at the time, Joan Heller, said, it was determined, quote, through the process of elimination. Police said a tipster from Green's neighborhood told them that the word on the street was that Green had murdered Chip. What's the word on the street? Uh, that's Who's the word spreading on the street. The word, I don't know. Kim? I don't know. <laughs> they didn't say who. I said he was recently released from prison on March 16th, 1989. He was serving an 18-month sentence for violating probation. Officials say he was initially sentenced to 24 months of community control, For possession of cocaine he had no records of behavioral problems in his time there and was also released early on good behavior i do want to note that green had several brushes with the law in brevard county florida before this happened he was charged with crimes ranging from burglary to robbery drug possession in all but one case where he was convicted of misdemeanor possession of drug paraphernalia he was found not guilty or the charges were dropped And this is also really sad. I didn't really know where to put this in here. But in 1977, Green's father, Booker T. Green, shot his estranged wife, Constant Green, twice before turning the gun on himself. So... Both of them died. Crosley Green lost both of his parents at one time at 19 years old, which would be awful. And this is where he got the nickname Papa because he kind of became like the role model for his family and things like that. Going back to the suspect Kim described, a black man, mid to late 20s, approximately 5'10 and muscular. At one point, she described him as a light-skinned black man with longish, loosely curled hair and a wide face with a close-cropped beard. Here's a description of Green at the time. Dark skin, closely cropped hair with a narrow face. Seems to match. Yeah, yeah, super matching for sure. So according to an article in Law and Crime, police later showed Kim a photo lineup, which I am showing to you now, Mallory. She picked out number two, which was Crosley Green. After stating several times that she was not sure. Now, you can physically see his picture is smaller and darker than any of the other pictures. Yeah, His head is smaller. The selection she was shown has five light-skinned guys and one dark-skinned man, which was Crosley Green. And the police told her the killer was in one of the photos. So that's very leading, which you should not do. And legally, now you cannot do that in Florida. You cannot tell a victim really? that the suspect is in the photo lineup. You cannot yeah, be like, I don't even know how
1: that's possible. How would, yeah. how would they do that if they're relying on her right. to make it? How can they say we know it's him? And that's what we you know. Call he's a here.
0: <laughs> we feel it in our bones. Like yeah, what? like what? <laughs> God damn it! Also, in the photo, Green had a prison buzz cut. Since he just got out and no facial hair, so if you remember, Kim said he had kind of long hair and facial hair. Despite that, a grand jury eventually indicted Green in June of 1989 on I hate of- Florida. I'm I know. So I'm, sorry. So sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just interrupted you, but all it's I can okay. think about is how much I fucking hate Florida. <laughs> But, I mean, this could happen literally anywhere. Like This could happen today in Florida. Anyway, go ahead. You're good. Um, They indicted him on charges of first-degree murder in connection with the abduction and shooting of Charles Chip Flynn Jr. He was also indicted on two counts of kidnapping and two counts of robbery with a firearm. A nationwide alert was then issued for Green when authorities couldn't locate him. They eventually found him and arrested him two months later after they got an anonymous tip so another anonymous tip, still in Florida. Green later said he wasn't trying to skip town, but he didn't turn himself in because he didn't trust police, which I wouldn't Fair. either. Yeah. Prosecutors quickly announced they would seek the death penalty. Well, that's like a hundred, but okay. Yeah. For this trial, it was an all-white jury, of course. Four men, eight women. That's not a jury of your peers. No, it's not. It is absolutely fucking not. Kim, the only I witness- lied. I'm Furious. i know i know Me, 20
1: minutes ago i don't get mad
0: there's just so much wrong here kim the only witness to the shooting testified that an armed gunman who she identified as crossley green by pointing at him in the courtroom approached her and flynn in the park if you remember when they were given when she was given the photo lineup she stated several times she was not sure But in the courtroom, she's suddenly sure it was him, just saying. So after the gunman, which she identified as Crossley Green, approached her and Flynn in the park, Flynn got out of the truck, approached the attacker, who forced Flynn onto his hands and knees, demanding money. The attacker then tied Flynn's hands behind his back with the shoelace and stole $185. He then drove the two to an isolated orange grove. Kim, through tears, said the attacker ordered her out of the car, she tried to run but was caught and was pushed to the ground and this mean attacker allegedly called her a slut and she was really upset about that. She said he put a gun to her head and told her to do what he wanted or he would shoot. Flynn, still sitting in his truck with the hands still tied behind his back, according to Kim, fired at the attacker with the gun he had in his truck. So yeah, I want how, you to picture that real quick. How the hell did you do that, Kim? That right. shit's not adding up. Kim- Put your hands behind your back and try to grab a gun and shoot it. Oh right. my god. Yep. So, like I said before, Flynn died on the way to the hospital. Remember, he never told authorities what happened. All he said was, get me out of here. I want to go home. And this is so, so heartbreaking. Crosley's sister, Sheila Green, testified against her brother at trial, saying he admitted the shooting to her. No. At the time of the trial, Sheila was awaiting sentencing on a federal drug conviction. Oh, Prosecutors. Fuck.
1: That. Yeah, I know. Fuck that. They Process. they made her do that. They were mm-hmm. like, "We'll give you you're going to tell me that they
0: told her yeah, they'll give worse. her a lesser yeah. sentence." Yeah, it gets worse. Fuck um, this. I told you you're going to be so mad. Oh, okay. My God. <laughs> Prosecutors agreed to speak on her behalf if she testified against her brother. During his opening statements, defense attorney Rob Parker attacked Sheila's testimony saying, Is this how you validate a bad case? By bringing in the testimony of someone who faces many, many years in prison. He Mm -hmm. also criticized Kim's identification of Green and cited numerous inconsistencies with her story. Green said he spent the night of Flynn's death at a party at his cousin's house and his girlfriend's house, slipping out to sell marijuana and cocaine. Both women live about two miles from Holder Park, where the attacker allegedly got them into the truck. He says multiple people saw him that day. His defense team at the time of the trial only called one of those people that saw him that day. In an interview with Florida Today, Green said, "Quote: At the time, there's no secret. I'm not a saint. I sell drugs." Green insists he never met Flynn and was never in his truck, and he sticks by that story to this very day. Despite maintaining his innocence, he was convicted by the again. All-white jury, in September of 1991, a first-degree murder and two counts of kidnapping and robbery with a firearm. Crosley Green was then officially sentenced to death by a judge. Wow. According to an article- many injustices. I know, it's so bad, and like, I'm not even halfway through my script, like- Oh my god. This is so bad. According to an article in Florida Today, juror Jean Bloss said she was the last jury member to switch her vote to guilty. She said she was concerned about the fact that Green's fingerprints were not anywhere on the truck and no murder weapon was found. She was also skeptical of Kim's courtroom identification of Green. Initially, four jurors voted not guilty. As deliberations continued, Bloss said she felt pressure to change her vote. Finally, she gave in, swayed by the testimony from Green's sister. But in a 1999 interview, Joan said that she was haunted by her decision to switch her vote to guilty. In 1992, Sheila Green, Crosby's sister... Signed an affidavit saying she lied on the stand after being, quote, forced to do so by investigators. And in an interview with 48 Hours in 1999, she said she never talked to her brother about the shooting. She told Erin Moriarty that prosecutors said she would never see her kids again if she didn't testify against her brother. And that it was the last chance to, quote, help herself because she was already convicted. And watching that interview is so, so sad. Like, you can tell she is ashamed of what she did and she regrets it. Ugh. Like, if you think your kids are getting taken away as a mom, like, what options do you have, you know? And Green said he didn't hold it against her. In a later interview, he said, quote, I'm not angry with my sister. I love my sister. So there were and are many problems with this case against Green. But the problems really started when the investigation did. Kim was never, ever considered a suspect. She was immediately labeled as the victim never considered to be the shooter. Authorities never tested her hands for gunshot residue. She was the only witness to Flynn's killing, but was never questioned as a suspect. Little evidence was collected at the scene to support what she said happened that night. In fact, authorities did test Chip's hands for gunshot residue, and they didn't find any, which would contradict both the fact that she said there was a shootout and the fact that Chip allegedly shot the assailant. Like... Are you kidding me? I would just like to say, watching the former prosecutor, that's Chris Wright, C-H-R-I-S-W-H-I-T-E, try to explain his way out of the faults in this case. I was dying laughing. At one point, Aaron Moriarty asks, So no GSR taken from her hands. He goes. I don't know if there was or wasn't. She cuts him off. There was and keeps going. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, I highly okay. recommend watching the 48 hours episode just for that because this prosecutor doesn't know what the fuck he's saying. And like he gets facts thrown at him from badass Aaron Moriarty and he's like, uh, 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 well, uh, uh, uh.
1: It's so sad that there are so many cases that read just like this. Yep. And I can think of like infamous ones off the top of my head where it's just like, Something terrible happened and the police think or they just decide they're going to go with this is the easiest way to get a conviction. We want this to we want this handled. Like Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, for example, I'm thinking of like the West Memphis three where they're like these teenagers are worshiping the devil in the Mm -hmm. woods, which, by the way, was not true. And then they're like they had to have killed these kids. And it's like. Despite even m- like know. little to no evidence, yeah at the scene or knew the kids. Like and they were just like, This is this is our solution. I want to know what it's like to be in that mindset where you're gonna say and do anything, you're convincing yourself yes. that it's the truth. You think that so strongly that this is the person who killed. This guy, and you're not even going to question it or look into anything else? The
0: one witness that was there, you're not going to question her?
1: And you already told me, I've been here for two minutes and I already know that she has a reason to be pissed off at him. You didn't ask some questions?
0: Correct. So then we get to the footprints. There's a discrepancy about where the footprints, which authorities say belong to the assailant, start and end. So there was a sandy dirt road, which is where the truck was. There were footprints in the sand, but if you look at the video of the crime scene, they literally walk out of the park. Kim said the assailant forced them both back in the truck and drove away, not walked away. And in the final rendering, the footprints leaving the park were left out of the diagram, which was presented at trial. It doesn't match the evidence at the scene. It matches Kim's story, and that's all that mattered to prosecutors and police for that matter. Of course. Because physical evidence doesn't mean shit. In 2000, the state claimed it had more evidence against Green. Two tiny body hairs were magically found inside the truck, and investigators tested them for DNA. Now, these were brought to light 11 years after the crime happened. Green said he wanted them to be tested because he was never in the truck. They used NTA DNA, which is mitochondrial DNA, so it can't be used to identify a specific person. It can only identify broad family relations. So according to the state, Green could not be excluded, but this kind of DNA testing doesn't determine a match. So basically, Green's paternal family members would be in the group that is not excluded in these two hair samples. But this is fucking wild, and I don't understand how this shit happens. Crossley's brother, O'Connor, believes the hairs could be his. He happened to be a friend of the previous owner of the truck. Shut the fuck up. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) He told 48 Hours he even drove it several times. So in my mind, those hairs do not tie Crosley Green specifically to the truck. So those hairs are irrelevant, in my opinion. Another problem. At first, Kim's description of the attacker was vague. According to police, she was hesitant when she identified Green as the attacker in the photo lineup. But at the trial, she said she was positive Green was the killer. And speaking of the trial, among the other problems, according to Florida Today, four state witnesses eventually recanted their testimony, saying they were coerced or threatened to testify by (laughs) Prosecutor Chris White- C-H-R-I-S-W-H-I-T-E. Fuck this guy. All four of them were facing legal problems of their own at the time. And one of them said he helped investigators focus on Green, even though he had information indicating he was not the killer. Other problems include Green did not a drive a stick shift, which is what the truck was, and somehow managed to drive the truck and aim a gun at the same time. There was also zero physical evidence. I don't know how many times I can say this. Tying yeah. Green to this crime. Zero. Green left no Fingerprints at the scene, although he was supposedly in the car and drove it. His fingerprints were not found on Chip's wallet. Kim didn't mention anything about gloves. Chip's fingerprints were also not found, even though he owned the truck for about two months. The only fingerprints found in the truck were Kim and David Stroop, the man whose house Kim said she drove to when she escaped. Do you know where else her fingerprints were found? Flynn's 22 revolver, just say. Well, she did take it out of the glove box. She said that. I know, but wouldn't Chip's fingerprints be on the gun if he's holding it behind his back? Yes. Kim also said she heard numerous gunshots, but there were no shell casings at the scene. The only bullet recovered could have come from Chip's own gun. The only single bullet with his only single chest wound from his gun. I mean, multiple gunshots and no shell casings. How much clearer does it get? There were also accusations of jury misconduct during the trial. So this means the only thing tying Crosby Green to this crime is Kim Holla. And that to me is not proving beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed this crime. Remember, he's on the death. He's on death row. Yes. In 1994, a woman named Nan Webb became convinced of Green's innocence. Nan and her husband, Bill, are opposed to the death penalty and met Green while visiting another death row inmate. In 1996, Nan persuaded Chicago-based private detective Paul Cialino to help in this case. Cialino teamed up with three other investigators who now say Green never should have been convicted. They were so convinced of his innocence that in 1999, the group of private investigators put up a $25,000 reward for information that helps convict someone other than Green for the killing. I'm a little bit conflicted because at what point are you paying for testimony, but I mean, they really believe in his innocence. But the team did re-interview witnesses, knocked on doors to find possible new witnesses, and even reconstructed the crime scene. Along the way, Cialino invited a reporter with the Miami Herald and the 48 Hours team to join them. And here's where we find out more details of what happened that night. According to a 1999 article by the Miami Herald, Kim and Chip had been boyfriend and girlfriend for a couple years but broke up a few months before. Again, he had a new girlfriend. But for some reason, they were together on the night of the shooting. At about 11 p.m., they went out in Flynn's truck, parked in a wooded, secluded area on the edge of a nearby baseball diamond in Holder Park and smoked marijuana. Shortly after is when Kim claims the black man came to the truck. Mm. So that's a new detail. (laughs) The marijuana part. Yeah. But at this point, the media really caught wind of the efforts to free Crosley Green. And there were numerous newspapers, local news stations, even national media that caught the story about the man who was possibly wrongly convicted. In 2010, after spending 19 years on death row, Green's attorney successfully fought for his sentence to be changed to life in prison due to an error in sentencing. His request for a new trial was denied, despite some of the evidence being questioned and three essential witnesses recanting their testimony. And then after 32 years in prison, Crosley Green was released after a US district court overturned his murder conviction, he was released from prison on conditional release, which is house arrest, while his case was pending appeal. So I watched the reunion in the 48 hours episode and it made me tear up because his family was just so happy that he was oh. out and they were all screaming and hugging and it was very wholesome. They believed in his innocence. And here's why the two initial officers at the scene, Rick Slate and Clark, shared their beliefs that Kim was responsible for the murder. With prosecutor Chris White, who took notes from their meeting. White never shared those notes with Green's defense attorney. This right. was an infringement of Green's constitutional rights, known as a Brady violation. Yep. That was the reason federal judge Roy B. Dalton overturned Green's conviction in 2018. Rixie and Clark also told 48 Hours that they told homicide detectives, homicide investigators, anybody that would listen that they thought Kim was the one who did it. The federal district court wrote, it is, quote, difficult to conceive of information more material to the defense than the fact that the initial responding officers evaluated the totality of evidence as suggesting that the investigation should be directed towards someone other than Green. So Green was reunited with his family, got to meet his grandkids for the first time, got a job making metal parts at a factory, got to regularly worship at his church. So... You want to be happy. This is where you want the story to end, but it doesn't. As of April 17th, 2023, this year, Green was sent back to prison. Why? The state appealed the 2018 decision and the 11th Circuit Court reversed it, which is fucking bullshit. If a judge rules that you were wrongly convicted, period, you're done. Like you can't, I don't, I don't know. Like your conviction should not stand at all that means a judge who was versed in the law found your rights were violated if anything it should be a new trial because you have quote-unquote new evidence that your team didn't have before you know like it's fuck our justice system according to pr newswire after the announcement multiple friend of the court or amicus briefs from over 100 prominent law school professors former state court judges current and former prosecutors Asked the Supreme Court to hear Green's case. The Supreme Court denied hearing the case. Oh, you mean the current Supreme Court? Yeah, the current sub- <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> Color me shocked. <sighs> Key witness testimony was literally withheld from the defense team. Like, I don't know how you can appeal a violation of rights. So Crosley Green is sitting in prison. Again, after being free and starting over. In the most recent 48 Hours episode, they played clips of the final time Green got to freely hug his family. And I watched this man, days away from having to report back to prison, sit there and say he still has hope in the system that he will be free again. And it's the most heartbreaking thing. And all I keep thinking is why and how the fuck can this happen? i'm pissed like are you crying yes i mean (laughs) i get it i get it so
1: unfair i don't understand how from an outside perspective
0: like how anyone on that jury could have no it's literally the only thing tying him to the crime is kim who has a motive for wanting to kill her ex-boyfriend one of green's lawyers hit the nail on the head when he said quote somebody said a black guy did it and everyone believed it so fucked up according to 48 hours green's race was referred to in the trial 140 times so you cannot say to me with a straight face that race was not a factor in this case and it was an all-white fucking jury that is not a jury of your peers in a press conference an attorney for crosley green said quote mr green and his family are devastated by the news today yet they are a family of remarkable faith and they are clinging to one remaining hope that the state of florida will grant clemency or parole there's still time for the state to do the right thing they won't time for opinions this man is innocent of murder and he did not commit this crime i don't know how you can tell me that he did i think that the police found an easy target like you said mallory to pin this crime on and they got tunnel vision they took kim at her word and at the start I think the media did too.
1: I just think it's so unfair because I do believe that if he got a fair trial today, if this was retried, he would not be in prison. You'd like to think not. No, I do because I truly think one of the things that made the case feel stronger to a jury was his own sister testifying against him. And then for her after that to come out and be like, Police like basically told me if I wanted to get less time in jail, I had to do this and lie. It's called intimidation. Like, yeah. And also, like, so much time has passed that there's no fucking way that Kim Halleck can sit there and, like, have the same exact story that she did in 1989. I think that she would slip up. She would, mm-hmm. I think she would crack on the stand today. I
0: don't think that she would be able to be as believable. I don't know. I mean, I can't remember if I put it in here or not, but I think I read somewhere Kim was like asked about all the appeals and stuff. And she was like, well, I just, it's bringing it all back up to me and I just bringing it up for the appeals over and over. It's like, hurting me fuck you goodbye (laughs) that makes me even more mad because that's such an
1: injustice to people who act like actual victims who have to go through a trial and actually do have to re-feel those feelings when it's like okay listen Kim i I was getting diebugs from the beginning of this and it was very clear to me and a lot of other people who are probably listening to this that you did this and made this whole fucking thing up.
0: Literally, there's no case. It's one person saying this guy did it and that's it. There's no fingerprints. There's no DNA. There's no murder weapon. Evidence at the scene does not match what Kim said. And I'm not saying he was an angel, you know. Uh, like and not involved in criminal activity at the time because he was he admitted to that he himself was selling drugs and not on a good path but that doesn't mean he deserves to rot in prison for something he didn't do through all of this he has maintained his innocence he's good. also maintained his faith and love for his family and continues to remain optimistic i couldn't <laughs> be optimistic if i were him he spent 32 years in prison still has hope in a system that's failed him time and time again He's 65 years old. This man has been robbed of his life. His whole life. Two of his sisters died while he was in prison. He was out of prison with a GPS monitor, so he couldn't take his grandkids fishing. He couldn't leave the house unless he was going to work or going to church. It's horrible. I was sobbing watching him say goodbye to his family. Yeah, I'm not going to subject myself to that. That's horrible. Just watch the prosecutor make a fool of himself. That's that's that'll make you happier. In his time out of prison, he got engaged, so he has a fiance, so he's losing her too. Seems like everyone around him looks up to him. He even got the nickname PPE at his work, standing for pure positive energy. Oh, I know. And I commend him for that because that's stronger than I would ever be. As Florida today points out, the weak evidence, the violations of Green's constitutional rights, the contradictory statements from Kim, none of that matters anymore. Green is out of appeals. Now his only chance is being granted parole or the governor grants him clemency. Green was a model prisoner and citizen when he got out. He's maintained his innocence from day one, but nine times out of 10, you have to admit guilt to get out on parole. So that leaves him with clemency at this point. And this could have horrible implications for the justice system. Specifically, the Brady Doctrine, a law that requires prosecutors to turn over material exculpatory evidence to defense before the trial. So this is why the 11th Circuit Court ruled that prosecutors didn't need to turn over the evidence, because the notes themselves were inadmissible at trial. Green's lawyers rightfully argued that knowing the two officers first at the scene thought somebody else did it and reported that to the lead prosecutor would have changed the way they investigated and their trial strategy yeah and it could have changed the way the defense cross-examined those two officers during the original trial as an article in law and crime points out it's not the prosecutor's call to decide whether evidence is important or not but they do have to turn over evidence to the defense it's just that fucking simple that's not the fucking point just because
1: just because you say like it wouldn't have been admissible doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be turned over. Right. That's not, you the don't point. know your, the point is not there because Mm-mm. then do it, turn it over Correct. knowing that it won't be admissible. And right. they there's a reason you it. didn't turn it yeah, over. Yeah. There's
0: a reason you didn't fucking turn it over right now. Green's team continues to represent him pro bono, which is, fucking amazing the team includes crowell and mooring partners keith harrison gene thomas vincent Galuzzo, sorry and counsel drake morgan so keep it up if you'd like more information on this case we'll have a link to the crowell and mooring's website in the show notes. it has links to media coverage throughout the years a breakdown of the case and more there's also a fact sheet that lists new evidence that Green's team is fighting to get heard, including 10 alibi witnesses not presented at trial that have stepped forward saying Mr. Green was somewhere else during the time. Hello. There is <laughs> Hello. There is a change.org petition circulating online with over 58,000 signatures. The goal is 75,000. If that happens, the petition will become one of the top petitions signed on change.org. I signed it. I hope you all will too. We'll also put that in the show notes. This man is 65 years old. There's a very good chance he could die in prison for something I, along with many others, believe that he did not do. He didn't do it. There's also a Justice for Crossley Green Facebook page that has been verified by the team representing Green. We'll post that information for you, too. On the Facebook page, a recent post said letters of encouragement and support he's received in prison has helped Green keep going. So if you'd like to write him, you can message the Facebook page for details. A final note, this is not the only instance of prosecutorial misconduct in the 1980s in Brevard County, Florida. Again, color me shocked. According to Crowell and Mooring's website, at least three other men, Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, and Juan Ramos, have been exonerated from convictions that were based on the same type of misconduct that happened in Green's case. What? Racism? (laughs) (laughs) Period. In all of those convictions, the same group of prosecutors and investigators used fraudulent dog handlers and coerced testimony, among other tactics, to win their cases. So this isn't unique. (laughs) There are innocent people in prison. There are innocent people on death row. And something needs to change. Now to the whole point of the podcast. (laughs) Why did this case blow up? The biggest reason, in my opinion, is the amount of people talking about it at least later in the case. Crossley Green has a phenomenal support system around him. He has family, friends, strangers that are rallying around him, even from the start believing in his innocence. We say it all the time, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. All it takes is to get the attention of that one person who can change the trajectory of any case. Like Nan, I forget her name. Nan got the private investigator involved and now that has led to him getting out of prison and then unfortunately getting put back. Constantly making noise keeps the media interested. So another reason is because of the 48 hour coverage. 48 hours is one of the most iconic true crime shows on television. They do extensive research. Their episodes air constantly while parents are at home doing laundry or whatever. They're just turning it on. I mean, I turn it on while I'm doing stuff just to have something in the background. So those cases stick with you. So it got a lot of eyes from that. And Crosley Green himself has never given up. Not once. He's got a great attitude and that helps people around him continue to fight for his freedom. This is totally speculation on my part but another reason I think this case blew up is that the injustice surrounding it is glaring like it is so obvious that something is wrong here that people are paying attention. It literally shouts wrongful conviction like I think people are rightfully outraged that this man not only spent decades in jail on death row, but is now fucking back in jail. It's so dangerous, too. It's It's dangerous. The
1: fact that that she could come up with a description of a man to police and then pick out a man that looks nothing like the description and they just go with it. It's like literally any one of those six guys could be in this situation and all
0: of them would be innocent. Because they didn't fucking do it. People are passionate about this, me included. Public interest is crucial to keeping a case alive in the media. So again, you can sign the petition, write to Crosley Green in jail to give him some support, join the Facebook page. And if you feel so inclined, which I probably am gonna, write to Florida lawmakers. The current governor is Ron DeSantis. You can contact his office by calling 850-717-9337. Sending a physical letter to Florida's Capitol Building. The address is 400 South Monroe Street, Tallahassee, Florida, 32399-0001. You can also visit flgov.com contact governor to email his office. Let's get this man out of fucking prison. And, which I think a lot of people forget, let's get Charles Chip Flynn justice. Because yeah. this man did not do it. As former journalists, we want to give credit where credit is due. For this episode, I got my information from Florida Today, Click Orlando, The Miami Herald, WFTV, The Orlando Centennial, CBS News, PBS, ABC News, CNN, PR Newswire, Law & Order.
1: You can find a complete list of our sources in the show notes. Please make sure to check them
0: out. Bye! Bye! Fuck a wrongful conviction. Get this man out of prison. Here Goodbye. (laughs) What <laughs>